Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke, or Luke, my goodness, Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. While you're making your way to Ruth chapter 4, I just have to say I'm, I'm so thankful. Uh, this is not this way in every church, by, by God's sovereign plan, to have multiple people who can teach the Word and teach the Word well, um, both in content and in delivery. Um, that is a rare thing. We are blessed. I am particularly blessed to be able to sit and hear good teaching done just, again, content and delivery. And when I say delivery, I don't mean like charismatic and, you know, that's just not us, but, uh, you know, this big, you know, but delivery in the sense of pastoral and loving and good for, for us, uh, that, that I can sit here and receive that. And uh, I, I'm very thankful for that from, from Brandon to Russ to Greg and Nick and so on and so forth. We're just very blessed. Don't take that for granted. I don't want to take that for granted. Ruth 4, let's begin. We'll be this week and next week in Ruth 4, and then we'll move to an an Advent series through uh, December. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging, To confirm a transaction, the one drew off a sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and to Malin, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. 
And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, or then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman, or the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. <clears throat> Fathers, we come this week and next week to a close in this largely overlooked, even often misunderstood, beautiful book and story of the gospel in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of the period of the judges when society looked not much different than it does today. May we see the glory of the gospel in these pages, in these few words that we'll look at this morning. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here's our primary theme in the book of Ruth, is God's unceasing kindness. God's unceasing kindness. Kindness. But it doesn't just his kindness. What does his kindness do? This unceasing kindness that leads us to restoration and blessing, both physical and spiritual, leads us to restoration and blessing. Both restoration and blessing that is physical and spiritual. The author has very subtly pointed us to this reality. That Naomi and Ruth, as we talked about in the beginning of the book, are heading back. They are walking back. They're turning back in repentance. That God's kindness is leading them back to restoration in their home country. Well, Naomi's home country. Ruth, venturing from her gods to the one true and living God, that is the picture. The bigger picture than just them walking back is this that God does in the lives of these two women what he will eventually do in a much bigger way, and that is this he will restore what has been broken by sin. 
Naomi, Ruth, walking in sin, he in his kindness draws them back and is in the process of restoring them. That small picture is just a foreshadow of what he will do on a much larger scale. It's a story or a portrait of the gospel. God rescuing his people. God works all things for the good of those who are loved and called according to his purpose, for their salvation. He even uses their sin for their good as a part of saving and rescuing them. Let me quote, Even those who love him faintly and sometimes waywardly. Right? I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we work through today. That God works things, all things for the good of those who are loved and called according to His purpose as He works out their salvation. Even those who love Him faintly and sometimes waywardly. The first thing I want you to see today as you keep that in the back of your mind is this. That God's concern is for me but not centered on me. God's concern is for you, but not centered on you. Have you ever asked this question? What is God doing? You ever ask that question? You go to work? You're dealing with your kids? You're dealing with a sickness? Struggling when you're marriage. What is God doing? Your emotions are out to lunch. Like you just can't figure out what's happening. You just ask yourself, what is God doing? Naomi is wondering this the whole time. What is God doing? Back in the famine, what is God doing? Oh, well, we, we can't figure it out. We're going to go to Moab. And then she loses everything and comes back and she's bitter. And she, what is God doing? I, her, her actions of, of God has emptied me and I am bitter because of it is, is her saying, what is God doing? What is happening? She is struggling to trust Him. She is struggling to walk by faith. I imagine we've all asked the question, what is God doing? But here's a problem. Too often when we ask that question, we focus all the attention on ourselves. Let me quote Sinclair Ferguson here. Too frequently we focus attention on ourselves as though the answer lay within our individual lives as if we were the central key to interpreting the plan of God for the entire universe. So God is doing this stuff, and all I'm concerned about is how this relates to me. The focus is on me. Just as a side note, here's the practical reason for the word in the body. They are to point us outside ourselves, beyond ourselves. Listen, real community doesn't necessarily look like spending five evenings a week together playing on the same sports teams, but it does look like 
knowing others and being known enough to say, Sister, brother, the picture is always bigger than your situation. Always. Now listen, someone might be grieving or suffering, and it might be good to just sit and cry together for a while. But remember, the world can do that. Gospel community always resolves in the good news of Jesus. Brother, sister, the picture is bigger than your situation. What is God doing in my life? My first thought should be, there is more to this than just what's going on in my life. God is doing more than just whatever it is. It's happening to me. What God is doing in your life is never isolated from everything else He is doing. Ever. What God is doing in your life impacts other people, both people who are lost and people who are saved. It's all always a part of God's grand plan of redemption. If you remember, uh, as we taught through Ephesians, or if you weren't here, if you've read through Ephesians, if you haven't read through Ephesians, read through Ephesians, you'll see God's grand plan of redemption is to bring these new people, to rescue them and make them co-heirs with Jesus, where He becomes the firstborn among this new race of people, where in the end of this age, Jesus will arise as the summary of it all. As the grand point for why God is doing this. Here is my glorious Son. So the, what is God doing? That answer, the, the, the perspective we carry should always be connected to God is always doing something much more than just what He's doing in my life. You see, God is greatly concerned for us. He cares deeply for us. He cares deeply for Ruth and Naomi. He's orchestrating every aspect of their lives. From the famine to the death of her, relative, of her husband and sons, all the way through. He cares deeply for Ruth and Naomi. He loves you. He loves me in the midst of our trials. And He's loved us enough to orchestrate all of it for our good, but also for the good of others. And for a picture much bigger than what our two eyes can see. God's purposes crisscross and zigzag from one life to the next, from one believer to a non-believer, from one situation to the next, from one trial to another celebration, from one painful moment to the next, from one saint suffering to the next lost now saved. God's purposes are always bigger than you and me. He cares deeply for us, but He is not centered upon us. And the key to understanding our situations is not just what is He doing to me. But how is what he's doing in my life a part of a bigger picture? 
You see, if this is true, then our concern must be then centered on God. Our concern must be centered on God, not on ourselves. If we're to understand what God is doing, to be centered on self is not going to result in walking faithfully through. Must be centered on God. Understand what I mean by centered on God. Loving God, worshiping God, thinking about what is God doing beyond me. Treasuring what the Lord is doing. Listen, Boaz's heart was the Lord's first before it was Ruth's. Boaz's heart was first the Lord's before it was Ruth's. Yes, chronologically, but also in priority. And that's the main point I want us to see. Not chronologically, but in priority. If you reach back to last week in Ruth chapter 3, 12 through 13, it says this, And now it is true that I am, this is Boaz speaking, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. Pay it, again, Hebrew narrative, pay attention to the dialogue. Every word is crucial. Redeem, remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you what? Good. Huh. No, Boaz. It's not good. He's not supposed to. You're supposed to redeem him. Don't you know this? God's plan is that if the other relative will do it, Boaz says, then good. Let him do it. Now, how many of us, like Naomi, would have started scheming at this point? How can I get in there and get what I want? How can I make sure this guy doesn't want it? Like, how can I, you know, twist reality, just shift it just a little bit so that I make it a little less pleasant for him so that I can get what I want at the end. How can I be sure to be truthful, but maybe just withhold enough or say enough that I can get what I want. But look at what Boaz, Boaz was more committed to the Lord than he was to Ruth. Did you hear me? Husbands, wives, Children, singles, he was more committed to the Lord than he was to Ruth. His affections were stronger for the Lord than for his ideas or his plans. He loved God and God's ways more than he loved Ruth and all the goodness that Ruth was. He loved God more. Ruth was a good thing. Ruth was a great thing. As we know, there will come a redeemer through this line. Ruth was a good thing, but he loved and trusted God more. If he will redeem it, good. Ruth, Boaz understood God's law. He was the, not, he, Boaz, was not the nearest redeemer. God's law was for the other redeemer, the nearest one to do it. 
And Boaz trusted the Lord. But we say things like, but can't we just forego God's commands this time? Can't we just forego what God has said this time? Can't we just turn our head away from the holiness of God this time? Now listen, none of us ask this so explicitly, right? So overtly. It's, it's just hidden within there. It becomes a convenient thing. Well, I'm just going to, yeah, I know God said that, but I, you know, I'm going to go this way. I mean, this thing really isn't that bad, right? Or I mean, I'm suffering here. Can't the holiness of God wait? Can't the gospel thing wait? I mean, isn't this just a wisdom issue? Ever thought about this? Do you ever make a wisdom decision with a morally neutral heart? Is that even possible? So yes, even our wisdom decisions are moral issues because they're made with morally challenged hearts. That's why when we, when we go, particularly big decisions, guys, we need someone who can challenge our hearts in the process. There's so many times I sit in a conversation, I, I don't care whether you choose A or you choose B or Z or anything in between, but how your heart got there is incredibly, eternally important. It's a holiness issue. Or, I mean, you know, do we have to be that strict? I mean, isn't that legalistic? I mean, I really feel in my heart like this is the right path for us, right? And we begin to ignore and justify God's commands. But Boaz loves God so much that everything God has said, every word that has come from his mouth, Boaz deems as important. So much so that the love of his life is in front of him and he says, God's plan is for this Redeemer to do it. If he will do it, Good. Let him do it. How many of us could have done that? That's what we see with Boaz. He loved God more. He trusted God more. And he walked in obedience. There's really two options. There's either to have a heart centered on God or a heart centered on us. We're either fully satisfied in the Lord we will look to anything else as a means to satisfy us. And listen, I have to paraphrase John Piper here. The more lovable God becomes to you, the more all-satisfying beauty and value you see in God, the more you will be satisfied in Him, and then the roots of your sins will be severed. And you will walk in obedience like Boaz. Listen, Bo- Boaz, I mean, particularly at this point, Boaz is not just going, all right, well, God said it, so that's what I'm going to do. It's Ruth. It's a woman that was laying at his feet at the threshing floor. 
there's something more than just rote obedience going on in Boaz. Boaz's affections were for God before they were for Ruth. So here's the question. What loves in your life, what loves in your life eclipse your love for God? What loves in your life eclipse your love for God? Where do you see it at right now? You should have examples from yesterday. Things that I was chasing after that were more important to me than God. We talk about things like power, rest, or control. But it's even hard. Listen, it's even hard. Like we think, you know, I, I'm loving a good thing. And I may be even loving this thing for God's glory. Maybe it's even a part of my repentance. But we have to ask the question, even in those things that seem to be good, is there something I'm loving more than Jesus even in those moments? I mean, your motivation of repentance might be just further control or mastery to get, do things right. For your own self-righteousness sake. Listen, our loving is never untouched by our depravity. Right? Our flesh is always at work in there. So Boaz pursues the potential redeemer. He pursues him. <clears throat> Remember, Ruth was in the field gleaning, gathering food for her family. Now, think about this for a second. Where does Boaz go? To the city gates to be with who? The elders. <clears throat> Anybody here read Proverbs lately? A proverb lately? Yeah, read a few. Anybody read the last proverb lately? Proverbs 31. What happens in Proverbs 31? Like the picture is of this woman, right, who is doing what? She's going out. She's gathering. She's working for her family. She's doing good for her family. What's it say about the man in the middle of Proverbs 31? Where does he go? He goes to the gates. What's the picture? He goes to the gates. Not just the gates where, but the gates in to be with who? The elders. Look at the picture. What's happening in Ruth? It's a picture of the Proverbs 31 man and woman. And what is the Proverbs? It's just the, the wise applying of the heart of the law. That's what the Proverbs are. It's wisdom knowing who God is and what He has said and applying it subsequently. So what is the picture of Ruth and Boaz? The whole picture is of two people who love God, who understand God's heart, and are walking in wisdom, applying God's heart. The author is telling us, look at Ruth and Boaz. This is the point. This is the, where he <clears throat> is going to this Redeemer. It's not enough. Listen, it's not enough for Boaz to just to go, all right, Ruth, you know, I, I really want to marry you, but you know, there's this law that God has that I just got to make sure I fulfill real quick. 
to make sure it's taken care of so that God's satisfied. So let me just go make sure that I've crossed my T's and dotted my I's so that God is pleased. And then once that's done, if, it's, if you're still available, I'll come get you. Well, what's he say? How does the Proverbs 31 man and woman walk? God has said it, and it's good. Does that sound like a reversal of something to you, right? God has said this. Satan says, God has said this. But it's not good, is it? Can you trust God that God is good in this? What's Boaz saying? God has said this, and it's good. Even if it denies me you, it is good. Wisdom and walking in the Lord is not just crossing your T's and dotting your I's, but it's crossing your T's and dotting your I's because you love God and you trust Him. The next thing I want you to see is that love first for God leads to bountiful love for others. Love first for God leads to bountiful love for others. We, we get in here and start thinking, all right, so if I love God, then I got to say no to these people. I can't love them or, you know, or this is going to take me away from these people. And what, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Love first for God leads to bountiful love for others. We could even say leads to true love for others. Leads to overwhelming love for others. Leads to biblical love for others. Good love that would lead others to flourishing. Love that does what is good and right for other people regardless whether they recognize it as love. So love first for God, though, leads to bountiful love for others. All right, so Boaz gathers the elders and this nameless relative. He tells them the situation about the land, and here is the nameless relative's response. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you, Boaz says. And then the nameless relative says, I will redeem it. Now, I'm sure if you're reading this carefully for the first time, you just said, oh, no. Right? What's happening? No! This isn't supposed to happen! Boaz, you're the one! Right? And then we read on, and Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. <clears throat> now, real, real quick, just pause there for a second. You say, well, why does he say it this way and leaves out this detail and then goes on to say it this way? I, <clears throat> I think if, if I'm understanding the passage well, I think it's because the author is trying to draw out for us the juxtaposition between the nameless relative and Boaz. And we'll see why in just a second. He wants to see that, he wants us to see that apart from this burden, when there was nothing but financial gain, he was good. But now that there's financial burden, he's no longer good. 
Okay, that's the picture. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right. Uh, see, the, his right before it's Boaz's right. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the closer Redeemer. His responsibility is to take on this role. He has a covenantal responsibility to care for his wider family circle and to redeem family property in order to maintain it within the family circle. <clears throat> Go back and read the law. Notice, quickly, kind of a little bit of a side note here. Notice that the author leaves this supposed redeemer nameless. That's on purpose. Like you understand, we get down to the end of Ruth, and what do you hear? You hear a bunch of names, right? In the middle of this narrative, we start getting names, and names begat this name, and this name begat this name, and this name begat this. Names are important. So when they leave out a name, particularly when it's a sole individual, later they're going to talk about the women, right? This is a group of people. But particularly this individual who's supposed to be a redeemer, the name is left out. That's on purpose. It's to show this. That this man, because of his decision, will have no role in the advance of God's kingdom. He will have no place in advancing God's kingdom because he's only concerned about advancing his own. Because this man refuses to fulfill his covenant obligations, he will have no further significance and will have no place in the record of God's glorious purposes. He had a chance. He said no. When our love for others does not proceed from our love for God... We will, we will selfishly protect our inheritance. Let me say that again. <clears throat> when our love for others does not proceed from our love for God, we will selfishly protect our inheritance. I'll explain. That's the picture of the nameless relative. Boaz trusts in the Lord. His love is first for God and His promises. You see Him walking in this love for God that is supreme. His love for Him is first beyond all things. He sees God's glory is greater than His own. Greater than It's worth more than acquiring more wealth, more things. God's got His heart first. And so Ruth doesn't have to manipulate to get Ruth. He doesn't have to twist the truth to get what he wants. He doesn't have to justify his sin so he can feel better about pursuing Ruth. Boaz doesn't do this. Now here's, here's how I see this play out in many people's lives, my, my own included. You and I commit ourselves to some ideal or some plan or something. Think of it this way, to the Ruth that we want. I'm committed to that. Again, maybe even the Ruth is a good thing. 
and we become emotionally committed to it. We're wrapped up in it. Maybe it's a restful evening. It's a desire for a new church or a new job or a different degree or a certain relationship. Or we want things to go a certain way and look a particular niceness. And you begin to see this as your inheritance. You begin to see this as the thing that I have to protect. i got to get this. And then God sends someone along or His Word along and it challenges you in that decision. And now you get defensive. Why? Why? Because now you have an inheritance to protect. Boaz, with that same logic, how would he have responded to this law concerning the near redeemer? Nope, she's mine. I'm the one that's been feeding her. I've been taking care of her. I've been watching out for her. I've been letting her feed in my field. I've been sending extra stuff home to take care of Naomi. I've been, I've been doing all these things that the law requires of she is mine. Right? I mean, all those are good reasons, right? I'm the one that's put the work in. Now this guy's going to come along and he's just going to pick up where I left off and he's going to get everything. And just like the nameless relative, we wind up not able to fulfill our covenant faithfulness to God because the thing that we have committed ourselves to in our eyes in that moment is all that we have. And we have to have it. We stand there with it in our hands and we say, but if I don't get this, just as the nameless relative says, I will not have my inheritance. It will impair my own inheritance. And that is what my heart is set on. Listen, this, let me give you, if you and I were walking like Boaz in that moment where you're like, okay, I, I think this thing is a good thing, I really want it, but I'm more committed to the Lord than I am to it, then the it, the Ruth, can be plucked, set on the table, and examined, and looked at, and questioned, and debated. But the moment you start feeling like tension, because it's being debated, like i got to prove something, i got to defend something, i got to, right? It's now my identity is wrapped up in that because that is my inheritance, and this challenge that's coming in at this situation is going to impair my inheritance. But Boaz says, you know what? God is good enough for me. Getting Ruth, God's plan. My inheritance is God. I don't need this thing as my inheritance. Boaz knows that even if he doesn't get Ruth, he still has God. And that's enough. That's enough for him. So for him, the decision is up for grabs. 
I mean, listen, I'm sure in this moment he's going, okay, I really hope he doesn't take it because I really want Ruth. There's nothing wrong with that. But he wanted God and he wanted God's way more than his own. And so when the other Redeemer rebels, Boaz makes a public display of his covenantal and loyal love for Ruth. This love for Ruth, though, again, you got to see this order here. Love first for God. Now you have this person, the Boaz is love first for God. Now you have this person who chooses to protect his own inheritance, his own means of security and safety, versus trusting God and going God's way. But because Boaz is trusting God and trusting God's way, now Boaz is willing to risk the impairment of his inheritance to take on Ruth and all that that means. You want to think like bigger picture and think like Ephesians. Boaz in some way knows that his inheritance in God is untouchable. No matter what happens with Ruth. Either way, it's secure, unfazed, untouchable. And so this understanding and love for God that his inheritance is untouchable comes this willingness to sacrifice for Ruth. So it's out of an overflow of this love for God that comes his love for Ruth. And now this love for Ruth, here again, here's the picture being painted. He will do this covenantal and loyal love for Ruth, no matter the material expense. That's the juxtaposition. This is going to impair my inheritance. I'm willing to give up my inheritance for Ruth. No matter the material expense. Here it was too costly. Here there is no price I would not pay. See the picture. The nameless relative will fade into forgettable history and have no part in God's kingdom advance, wanting to hold on to something other than God, just like the rich young ruler does with Jesus. But Boaz will pay the price for the land, for the bride, for Naomi. He was willing to give it all up. That's the picture. Listen, covenantal and loyal love is always costly. Always costly. It's in the ease of American westernized Christianity that we think this stuff is supposed to be easy. Or we're supposed to get it for free. Why do we want, why do we want or think churches to be easy? Or expect loving those who don't love God to be easy? Or we think DNA and intimate discipleship is going to be easy? Or making sure you're prepared to listen to a sermon. Why do we think these things are going to be easy? Why do we think rebuke or exhortations should be I say, like, we're going to say, okay, well, exhortation, I get that. It's not supposed to be easy. But, but then why are we surprised that it's hard? Why do we expect what our elders ask of us to be easy or community and relationships to be easy or our emotional lives to be easy or even just as simple as reading the Bible? Why do we expect that to be easy? 
Listen, if we are people committed to covenantal and loyal love, it's not going to be easy. It's just not. And here's why. Because covenantal and loyal love is always redemptive. You say, okay, well, redemption pushes back against the gates of hell. That's why it's not easy. Covenantal loyal love is redemptive and redemption pushes back on the gates of hell. That's why it's not easy. If there is a re- any bone or trace of redemption in your in redemptive activity happening in your DNA group, it's not going to be easy. If the sermons you listen to are remotely redemptive in nature, it's not going to be easy to listen to. Rebuke, exhortation, reading your Bible. Because it's going to press against the flesh. It's going to push back the gates of hell. It's not going to be easy. The joy sat before him. What did Jesus do? But it wasn't easy. It can be joyful and hard at the same time. Easy doesn't mean joyless. And that's what Boaz is showing us here. He showed it on the threshing floor with his denial of his own lust and flesh. And he is showing it here on the financial floor with the denial of his greed. Redemption is pushing back on Boaz's flesh. Redemption is pushing back on Ruth's poverty. Redemption is pushing back on Naomi's lack of faith. They are all suffering the realities of sin, but they are all experiencing the blessing of redemption. Each and every step of the way. Again, just because something is hard doesn't mean it isn't exactly what you need. Delight in God first leads to bountiful obedience later. Not the other way around. Sure, we need to walk in obedience and don't wait until it's motivated by love for God, but we fight the battleground on our love and treasure of God first to see the goodness of God's plan. That's what's happening with Boaz. Yes, he's going to subsequently walk in obedience, but he first declares what God has said is good. He trusts him. He sees the glory in God's plan. But it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. You know, God has been so gracious that even in the middle of the Old Testament... He is saying to us, fix your eyes on the coming Redeemer. How are you going to believe that God is good? We talked about this a few weeks. How has God shown His love for us? How? You should, like, right off the top of your head. 
The cross. The cross. How do I know God is good? The cross. How do I know that God loves me? The cross. How do I know that God's plans are good? The cross. How do I know that I can listen and follow him in this? The cross. And here he's saying the same thing. Fix your eyes on the coming Redeemer. So listen, the people respond to Boaz's covenant commitments. Let's, let's look through this. The people respond to Boaz's covenant commitments. They appeal to God. Now look at verse 11. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now I don't have time to trace Israel history here, but look at that. Look what he's saying. God has promised... To make, like, before this time, right? God has promised to make the nation of Israel great. He says this specifically to Abraham. To make the nation of Israel great. And by great, God means multiplying these people who will image God's glory. But first, in order to do that, you need lots of people. You need lots of offspring. Right? And then you go through Abraham and Sarah, and they struggle to have a kid, and so on and so forth. God later blesses them with Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob. And then he is sent, sends a servant away to get wives, or he goes around get wives. Rachel and Leah come into the picture. And from here, and there's, there's two other wives in there, but anyways, that's more to the story. But from there we get what? We get the 12 tribes of Israel from their 12 sons. This is like the first time in Israel history when these 12 sons come and all of their offspring happen that finally it's their, the, the people are going, okay, God is making our name great. He is making His name great. This is the first time in Israel history that it's going, wow, God is keeping His promise. He will expand His image across the earth through His people. There are now lots of us. But look at the story the elders recognize that Boaz is about to marry a Gentile woman, not an Israelite. And they pray what? That the Lord would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. What, just these great women? I mean, yes, that. What's the picture? The nation becoming great. God's name becoming great. What's he saying? What are they saying? What are they praying for? That God would make His name great through Ruth and Boaz, just like Rachel and Leah. And they name specifically Judah. One of the twelve sons who with Tamar will birth Perez. Now here's why this is important. Through the twelve sons we have Judah. From Judah who with Tamar have Perez. From Perez comes Salmon. After Salmon comes Boaz. And later, through that line, comes King David. And later, through that line, will come Jesus Christ. Do you see what the elders are saying? They're saying, may God bring the offspring that will crush Satan's head through Ruth and Boaz. That's the picture. 
They are praying that God's people would be made great just like this very important family in Israel's history and that it will happen through a foreigner, a Gentile. And that through this, the promised offspring, the promise given to Eve, that he would come through this line. There are two unique things that happen at the end of Ruth. Quickly. First of all, they they bring her the child. These women interacting with Ruth with Naomi. Listen, what, what, was, what was Naomi's relationship like with Ruth through this picture? What's the picture that's been painted for us? Go back to Moab. I don't want to go to Moab. I want to go to Judah with you to worship your God. They get there. What's Naomi's attitude? Yes, you know, go glean from the fields, but I, I'm this embittered person whom God has emptied. Okay, then she meets Ruth, or meets Boaz. Ruth meets Boaz, and so on and so forth. And then what's Naomi do now? Hey, Ruth, go do something really stupid. Go put yourself out there. Listen, listen Naomi, the, the picture in Ruth is Naomi not treating Ruth well. But where is the child brought? Who is the child given to? Naomi. Who doesn't deserve the offspring? Naomi. Who gets the offspring? Naomi. What is that? Grace. Naomi is shown grace. Even after Naomi's continual lack of faith, her continual waywardness and unwillingness to deal with her sin, Ruth and Boaz show her grace. In a sense, Ruth and Boaz are both redeemers of Naomi. And so they take the baby to Naomi. What you see here is another, really the ultimate picture of Hesed. When it comes to Naomi. Listen, again, Naomi does not deserve to be a part of this child's life. Let alone to become his uh, caretaker. Naomi does not understand the scriptures like Ruth Naomi does not walk in humility like Ruth. Naomi does not have the faith that Ruth has. Naomi's life is a wreck, and her wreck has impacted Ruth. And yet Ruth says, I want you to help me raise my child. That is nothing but grace to Naomi. The second thing I want you to notice is the gentle rebuke of Naomi by the women that are around her. They say to her in verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. What is that referring to? I, Naomi, am empty. I have nothing. And God is the one who has done this to me. He has emptied me. And they say to you, God has not left you empty. Naomi says, 
He took it from me. Here they say, but look what God has given you. And then they say in verse 15, For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Again, what's the picture? Naomi has treated her poorly the whole time. Even in her good intentions. I mean, there were some good things in there, but the overall thrust is this poor treatment of Ruth. But what, is they, what do they say to her? Your daughter-in-law who loves you. Even more than that, she's worth more than seven sons. Do you hear the gentle rebuke to Naomi here? She's loved you in spite of all of this. And she's worth more to you than seven heirs. Seven people who can support you. Seven people who can go out and make a living to care for you in your age. She's worth more than seven of them. Listen, Ruth and Naomi represent two types of people. Represent two types of people. I was helped by my pastor friend John, not John Piper, the other John, with this. Ruth, someone who didn't grow up in a Christian home, those who, like Ruth, you were strangers, still enemies of God and His people, but, but, but not knowing Him, not knowing the Bible, not knowing the ways of God, so on and so forth. Ruth, in some ways, is representative of that. Naomi, though, is representative of someone who grew up in a Christian home. But your theology is terrible. You're regularly embittered, grumbling, emotionally controlled. Trouble comes and you abandon your faith. Self-absorbed, self-justified. Everyone else is the problem. We are never the problem. Everything that goes wrong in your life is because God and or the world is against you. That's Naomi, the one who grew up in the covenant community. Think about that for a second. But listen, the beautiful picture in this story, among many, is that God still loves both women. He still loves loves both. He still provides for both women. The faithful woman who was once far from God, she has faith, humility, and kindness. God loves her. He cares for her. He provides for her. The woman who is embittered towards God, God still provides for her. God still loves Naomi. Listen, you and I would deem Naomi as unfit for the kingdom. But God doesn't, and He redeems her. Did you see that? Listen, you and I are much more like Naomi than we are like Ruth. Unfit for His kingdom, and yet He redeems Naomi's. We should strive to be like Ruth, right? To have her faith, to live radically different. 
But do you realize that if you've been grafted into God's family through Jesus, then Ruth is your great-grandmother now too. You get to see the blessings that come from Ruth's hope and faith. Look what the women say to Naomi, verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Think with me for a second real quick. Who did this story start with? Who is the first person to come onto the scene? It's not Ruth, it's Naomi, right? And then who comes? Ruth, and then comes Boaz. How do they exit the story? Boaz is talked about, then he's gone, then Ruth is talked about, and she's gone, and now who's left? Naomi, right? This is not happenstance. The author is communicating to us this, that what God starts he finishes. What God starts, He finishes. And they say to her, He shall be to you a restorer of life. Think about those words. <laughs> a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. What's this pointing to? What are they pointing Naomi toward? Not Obed, the grandbaby. Not David, the great king of Israel. They're appointing her and us to a better redeemer than Boaz. A better one. And so the author is communicating to us that not only does God finish what he started, but he finishes well. You see, a redeemer will come and deal not just with Naomi's physical needs. But He will send a Redeemer that will deal with Naomi's eternal issues. Her sin. Her waywardness. Her stubbornness. Her grumbling. He will deal with that. This Redeemer will have none of His own sin to deal with and so be fit to deal with our sin. With Naomi's sin. And just like God brings Boaz a bride from a far away country, Jesus will come to the earth to a far country, the place where we live, and he will rescue us, redeem us, and bring us home to live with him forever. His redemption will look more. Like, like so, there will be land in our inheritance too, for he will be king and rule and reign, and there will be sin no more. But he will redeem us not just by buying land and giving us food, he will redeem us by paying the price for our sin and giving us new hearts that love God supremely. Our response is to have faith saying what God has said is good. And I trust Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning.
Well, I pray that we would see this better Redeemer. But that we would forsake the things on this earth that and capture or capture our our loves, these things that we long for more than you. That we would see that what you have said is good. That we would trust you and follow you. That Father, we would we would see that your plan of redemption through your son Jesus is good. That we need him. Give us the faith to believe that we're not good on our own. But you have sent Jesus to our country, to our land, to this earth, out of heaven, to the nations he has sent him, you have sent him to rescue. Rescue by washing us with his blood, to pay the price for our sins. Help us to trust, Father, that you are good, that you are faithful. Help us to see the cross and to know that it's true. That's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.